0: I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Amos Oz, the noted Israeli novelist, short story writer, essayist, and peace activist, the author of 40 books, and perennial Nobel Prize candidate, died on December 28, 2018 at the age of 79, Today, his greatest work is considered to be the memoir of his family, set against the background of the rise of Nazi Germany, World War II, and the formation of the State of Israel, and culminating in the suicide of his mother. It's called A Tale of Love and Darkness and was published in Israel in 2002 and two years later in the United States. I had a chance to interview Amas Oz in San Francisco about A Tale of Love and Darkness and other topics in November 2004. A film version of A Tale of Love and Darkness was released in 2016. Amasaz, why now? Do you feel you're finally ready for it, or was it something that had to be told anyway?
1: Well, I guess I was building and constructing this story inside my head and my guts for a lifetime. But it was not before I reached to be the age where I'm old enough to be my parents' parent, that I could write about them in
0: a parently way. I get the impression in your book that you very, very rarely spoke to your family or friends or anybody about your mother, and occasionally more about your father, but not much more, which meant that a lot of these feelings had not been fully processed by you. Is that accurate, do you think? All of my childhood was kind of cut
1: off from my present life for many years. Not from my literary work, though. It kind of infiltrated into my novels and stories, but not into my everyday life. In fact, after my mother killed herself when I was 12 or 12 and a half, I was so mad with her I wanted to kill her for killing herself. I felt as if she ran away with a man or walked out on us without leaving a note. I thought that was cruel, inconsiderate, heartless of her. Then eventually I grew mad with my father. How on earth could you lose such a deep, beautiful, wonderful, loving wife? There must be something very wrong with you. And then in turn, I hated myself. I thought mothers normally love their kids, even in the realm of animals. Even the mothers of criminals, even the mothers of Nazis love their kids. My mother didn't love me or else she wouldn't walk away without leaving so much as a note. So I hated myself. I thought if I only washed carefully behind my ears without cheating, she would still be here. That led into a rebellion against my father's world, against my Jerusalem background, against where I came from. I wanted to be born anew. My family were right-wing bookish intellectuals. I decided to become an uncomplicated, sun-tamed soldier and tractor driver in a kibbutz my father was short and and, uh, and talkative, I decided I have to become very tall and very quiet. So I left everything behind me and went to live on a kibbutz and for many years simply would not discuss my childhood, the family tragedy, not even with my wife and children, except in a very indirect way in my novels and in my stories. Eventually, with the course of years, anger subsided and gave room to curiosity, huge curiosity. I knew very little about those people. Although they were both great talkers, but they talked about neutral subjects. They never talked about their own childhood, never about their own emotions, never about their own traumatized background in Eastern Europe, never about their own love affair, marriage, nothing of that. They talked about Stalin and Truman. They talked about the international and local politics. My mother was a marvelous storyteller of gothic, mysterious, uh, dark fascinating stories, but again not directly about herself and about her feelings. There came a point when I realized that my parents' age, when the tragedy occurred, was about the same as my daughter's age when I was beginning to write this book. I could finally write about those people and about the entire milieu with a combination of curiosity, compassion, a touch of irony, open-mindedness, traces of the old anger, And a lot of empathy. The mode of tale of love and darkness is the following. I invited the dead to my home. Sit down, dear dead, have coffee. Father, mother, neighbors. We have to talk. We never talked when you were still alive. Let's sit and talk. I have some fierce questions to ask you. Then after we talk, I want to introduce you to my wife and children. They have never known you and you have never had the opportunity to meet with them. It's a good thing that you meet. Then you have another coffee and go away. You are not
0: staying to live in my home, but you may drop by from time to time for coffee conversation. There was a point, though, several years earlier when it sounds as if you confronted both your aunts, or at least maybe your aunts just spoke with you, because there's an entire section written in the first person, at least from one of their points of view, about what it was like growing up in uh, Rovno for your mother and also when she went over to Prague to get her degree. There must have been some curiosity before then, and also, did you take notes at all during those years? How did you remember all this? Well,
1: yes, I meant A Tale of Love and Darkness to be a polyphonic work. It has the voice of the child that I have once been, and the voice of the grown-up that I am now, and some voices of of myself in between, the adolescent self. It has extensively the voice of Aunt Sonya who serves as a substitute for the missing mother and tells the story of the childhood in Rovno. It has a lot of my father's voice and the voice of my great-uncle Joseph Klausner, the scholar and the pride of the family. It has many of the neighborhood's voices. Now, how can I remember? I have a confession to make. It's not exactly a memoir. I didn't call it a memoir on the jacket. It's not a memoir. It's a tale. Unfortunately, your Library of Congress does not recognize (laughs) tale as a literary form, even though it's the most ancient literary form, much older
0: than the novel or the short story or whatever, but they don't recognize it. There is, in English, uh, a tradition over the past 30 or 40 years of the fiction, nonfiction book, things like uh, Norman Mailer's Armies of the Night, Tom Wolfe qualifies, uh, The Right Stuff qualifies. There are several books that fit in that category between memory, fiction, and reality. Here comes another
1: little confession for you. I despise the distinction between fiction and nonfiction altogether. I think it's extremely artificial. I think A Tale of Love and Darkness will feel equally uncomfortable, classified as fiction and as nonfiction. I was actually working like those paleontologists who from a fossil little bone reconstruct an entire extinct animal. This is a work of a novelist. A lot of it is reconstruction, but I have very reliable sources when I needed to know exactly what went on in bed between my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother. I couldn't ask them. They were not around, and if they were, they won't tell me. But I did have my own genes, and I could address my own genes saying, dear my own genes, please tell me exactly and in great detail what was going on between grandpa and grandma in the bedroom 130 years ago, and my dear my own genes being their genes. They were witnesses. They were there on the scene. They could tell me with accuracy. Now, is this fiction or non-fiction? I really, I think this distinction is outdated and artificial. We have no Hebrew word for fiction. My books in Israeli libraries or bookstores are classified under siporet, which means narrative prose, and that's what they are. The definition of
0: this one is in the title. It is a tale. And in addition, of course, history itself changes depending upon who is writing it and what is happening. There are facts, of course. I understand from your book that you used a lot of the memoirs of your Uncle Joseph for much of the research. Did you get online and do a lot of other work as well? Or where did you find those parts of the story that the genes could not quite tell you? There was very little available, hardly
1: any documents. There were memoirs from my childhood. There were the stories my mother told me, and they are engraved in my memory. There were some neighbors and relatives who would give me testimonies. But above all, there was this storyteller's urge to reconstruct. In any case, even if I had access to the documents, to write down a dialogue which took place about 55 or 60 years ago, I will need my storytelling capacities. So I, I, I really, I don't care about it because essentially, it doesn't matter. Truth is not necessarily an assembly of data. Everything we know about one another, not just you and me, Richard, even that which we know about our kins, people who are very close to us, spouses, children, parents, siblings, is about 20 or 30% data and the rest is invention, projection, wishful thinking, nightmares, or all of those put
0: together. So it's a guesswork anyway. The next person is a guesswork. Did your children know about your feelings toward your parents prior to reading this material? No, there was a
1: strict embargo. I
0: told my children and my wife almost nothing
1: about my childhood. I was embarrassed and ashamed and uneasy with my childhood. So both for my wife and for my children, it was an introduction to an older generation. And
0: an important introduction because surprisingly, both my wife and my children like their ancestors the story is set against the background of the birth of the State of Israel. Here we are some 56 years later, and we seem to have lost sight of what exactly it was about and really the tragedy of what it could have been and never did become. And uh, I understand your daughter at one point said that this book should be read as an argument about the history of Zionism, because I think people don't really understand that The Jews had nowhere to go. Well, let me for a split second go back to the
1: structure. This is a piece of chamber music, very chamber story, father, mother, child, told against the background of a very broad symphony, an historical saga of four or five generations. And even the word background is not accurate because history was an immediate presence in their lives. For myself, for my parents, for my grandparents, history is not something that happens across the television screen from yourself. It's something that shapes your life, usually in a very cruel and and violent way. Now, the Jerusalem that I grew up in was a life raft full of half-hysterical refugees and survivors, both from Europe and from the Arab Islamic countries. When people present today the question, was Israel a good idea or a bad idea, notwithstanding the terrible, tragic price paid by Jews and Arabs, perhaps it was the wrong choice altogether. This is a meaningless question. Back in the 1920s and in the 1930s, every door in the world slammed in the face of of Jews like my family. Now, the irony of it, they were all devoted Europeans. They loved Europe. The literature, the music, the languages, they never regarded themselves as Ukrainians or Russians or Poles or Lithuanians. They were Europeans. Alas, at those decades, they were the only Europeans in Europe. No one else was a European. Everyone else was a Ukrainian patriot or an Irish patriot. The Jews were labeled, for being European, they were labeled cosmopolitan, rootless intellectuals, and parasites. These pejoratives, by the way, are the common language of Nazism and communism. And each time I hear parasites or ruthless intellectuals or cosmopolitans, I know they are talking about my family. Now, they loved Europe. Europe never loved them back. When they were young, my parents, every wall in Europe was covered with the hateful graffiti Jews go back to Palestine. Today, the same walls, ironically, are carrying the graffiti Jews get out of Palestine. Now, they had to leave, and there was nowhere to go. My grandfather was mad enough to try to become a German citizen, him and his family, for survival, when anti-Semitism in Poland became brutal and violent, physically violent. Luckily, the Germans turned him down, otherwise I won't be here. Eighteen months before Hitler came to power, he wanted for our family to become German. He tried to become French, Scandinavian. He applied for American citizenship, they said you have to wait 17 years. My family didn't have 17 years to wait in Europe in the 1930s. So, this was about finding a life raft. And they loved Europe and they were unhappy, secretly unhappy in Jerusalem, but they never shared it with me, not in front of the child. You don't talk about a lover who dumped you with a kick and a spite in the face before the child was born. This is not something you discuss with the child. You know, if I liken Europe of the 20s to the sheep Titanic, I would say that my parents and grandparents were the people who were thrown off the decks of the Titanic before the drowning, while the dining and the dancing and the singing was going on everywhere and all the decks were leaped and ablaze with parties. And they were thrown into the dark, freezing ocean and the music of the Titanic was partly composed by Jews and the dining was partly prepared by Jewish cultural chefs. That was an injury which they never shared with me, I had to guess it. That was an insult. That was what occurred behind their pathetic attempt to create a little replica of Europe in the heart of the Middle East, in arid Middle Eastern Jerusalem. Piano books in 17 or 16 languages in my house, subdued yearnings
0: for faraway landscapes. And yet they had no choice. And that brings us a little bit to how... It all came together, and where we are now, there's a fascinating conversation that occurred years later between you, at least I guess it's constructed between you and one of the oldies at the uh, kibbutz, Hulda, where you were growing up, and I, I suspect that the speech that this man gives is pretty much your own words about your feelings about the Palestinians, which is that the Jews did throw them off the land, and they do deserve their own place, which puts you in a minority there, or at least for a long time did. Well, Ephraim Avneri's speech, my words, his ideas,
1: he inaugurated me into a complex view about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. First, you cannot blame the Jews for coming to Palestine. It was not a colonial enterprise. It's stupid to assume today that the Jewish people went to a travel agency inquired about a holiday resort and took the wrong turn, opting for Palestine instead of the French Riviera. They came to Palestine because this was the life raft and they held to it with their fingernails. Now, Palestine was not empty. And the cracks of the tragedy is that the Palestinian people has no other country which as a nation they can call home. They tried, they were forced to try, Egypt and Lebanon, The Israeli Jews have no other country which, as a nation, they can call home. They tried for 2,000 years. As individuals, they succeeded in some places, not as a nation. Which means it is a tragic clash between right and right. To make it even more tragic, it is a clash between two former victims of Europe. The Arabs through imperialism, colonialism, exploitation, humiliation. The Jews through persecution, discrimination, and ultimately an mass murder on an unprecedented scale. Now, some of the worst conflicts in the world are precisely the conflicts between two victims of the same oppressor. Two children of the same cruel parent don't necessarily love one another. They see in each other the image of the violent parent, which is exactly the case between Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs. This is not very easy for Western idealists to conceive. Western idealists were pampered by a century of clear-cut conflicts. World War II was clear-cut. You knew who were the goodies and who were the baddies. Colonialism and decolonization was clear-cut. Every decent human being had to be against colonialism and for decolonization. Vietnam was clear-cut. The struggle against apartheid was clear-cut. Hence the inclination to assume that every conflict is clear-cut, that every conflict is essentially a Hollywood film with good guys and bad guys. Not the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It is a clash between right and right. Recently, I'd say a clash between wrong and wrong. However, this is a tragic battle between two refugee camps. Israel, behind its bravado and self-confidence and arrogance, is a refugee camp filled with half-hysterical survivors of offspring of half-hysterical survivors. Palestine is a refugee camp. You have a clash between two refugee camps which is what I tried to present in A Tale of Love and Darkness, and in a remote way, I had this reflected or reflecting the conflict between my parents. It's not about goodies and baddies. If anyone wants to read the family drama, hoping to find in the very last page who was the murderer, don't read my book. Who was the bad guy and who was the good guy ever since I was a little boy? I was fascinated and intrigued both as a storyteller and as a political activist by those conflicts which are not Hollywood, not good guys and bad guys. That's the one thing my family tragedy and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict may have in common. They are not black and white. This is what this book tries to tell, not
0: to convey, not to preach, not to persuade, but to tell, to inject a certain complexity. A couple of uh, things that did not pop up in your book, but did pop up in uh, David Remnick's profile of you in The New Yorker. One was that you left out the story of how you chose your name, Oz, which means strength in Hebrew. What is the story behind that choice? I understand you needed to have a new name when you got to the kibbutz because you were turning your back on the life that you'd led. But what prompted that particular name, and how did it come about?
1: Well, it was part of my rebellion against my father, of course. Metaphorically, I killed him and I killed the whole of Jerusalem and the whole of the family by going to a left-wing socialist kibbutz. Oz means in Hebrew courage, strength, determination. Everything I needed very badly but didn't quite have when I became a runaway kid and rebelled against my parents. Of course, today, I know better. I know that you don't rebel against your own heritage and your own genes. There is no way. Wherever you go, you carry them with you. What you do with them is perhaps your choice, but you don't just get rid of them. Today, I know that by becoming a peasant tractor driver soldier, I actually lived out one of my parents' fantasies to beget a new Jew, a new Jew very different than diaspora Jews, self-confident, tough, unsophisticated, simple. And then today, by sitting in a room full of books and writing even more books, I fulfill another part of their own fantasy. So whatever I did, I was dancing to their music without knowing it. Did somebody suggest
0: the name Oz to you?
1: Or did you suddenly say, hey, that's it? It was whispering in the dark. I guess this just popped out because I was scared to death. I lacked strength. I lacked courage. I lacked determination. I lacked Oz, so
0: I put it in my name. Another another interesting thing that Remnick came up with was that you were blonde, your parents were dark. They called you shagetz, which is the Yiddish word for non-Jew male. Uh, you decided not to put that little piece in your book.
1: Mind you, the materials which I left out of the book will be sufficient for many other volumes. Another reason why I don't call this book a memoir is that it's not about me. I'm just a supporting character. The protagonists are my mother and my father. This book tells the story of their childhood, their ancestry, their teenage, their unhappy marriage, and their death. It only covers the first 15 years of my life, and even that in a
0: selective way. In terms of the relationship of your parents and the relationship of the birth of Israel, there's another element thrown in, which is the role of the British in all of this. When the Arabs were invading, Palestine in 48, the British took their side, even though they were the ones who agreed to the accord. What was going on?
1: Britain was living up to its reputation as perfidious Albion. At some point, it helped and encouraged the Jews with the Zionist project in order to have a leverage and a whip against the Arab world and keep it submissive and obedient. But when it came to fruition and Israel was about to become a nation, the invasion of the five regular Arab armies into the state of Israel minutes after its declaration of independence in May 1948, this invasion was actually a British fist, thinly wrapped in an Arab glove. It was a British invasion. The Jordanian, Transjordanian army was essentially a British unit. So was the Egyptian army to some extent. So I don't think Britain has much to pride about its role in the Middle East
0: in those years. Kind of interesting that Britain has several times used this idea of partition, and each time, Ireland, India, Palestine, it's achieved disaster. In Palestine, the British were not the ones who promoted
1: partition. The idea of partition came actually from the United States and the Soviet Union, one of the rare cases of collaboration between, between Truman and Stalin. It was a UN revolution with a solid two-third majority to create a Jewish state and an Arab state, Palestinian state, by dividing Palestine. Britain abstained. Britain not even supported it. No, they initiated the partition in Ireland and in, perhaps in India. I'm not even sure about this. They had their own calculations,
0: and these were essentially imperialist calculations. When you were growing up, during those years, when your parents were talking, did they ever talk about the United States at all? Yes, in a vague way, America was a faraway, wild, exotic
1: place where people stampaded herds of cattle across endless plains, dug for gold, shot Red Indians, and the one who shot most Red Indians was rewarded with a beautiful girl. Not that little me had the slightest idea what one does with his prize if they would have shown me on Cinema Edison in America, where the one who shoots the largest number of girls get rewarded with a handsome, good-looking Indian, I would believe them. But America was bizarre, far away. Of course, in forty-eight, we all became extremely grateful both to Truman and to Stalin. There were times, you won't believe it, when both Truman and Stalin were worshipped by the Jewish community in the land of Israel for their support of the creation of a Jewish state in a part, small part, of the promised land. But perhaps the more important point is I'm answering a question you didn't ask. The 1940s were the years of magnanimous messianic dreams about the pending state of the Jewish people, which was supposed to be the most wonderful, the most peace-loving and pacifistic, but at the same time, the most military, mighty, and deterring all our enemies, the most biblical, but also the most modern, the most shtetl-like, but also the most progressive, social-democratic, and cultural and civilized, and, and liberal country. Of course, these dreams could not possibly be fulfilled. Israel's middle name on its visiting card could be great expectations. The 1950s were indeed the morning after with fierce disappointments and disillusionments, siege, animosity, war with all the neighbors, vast influx of penniless immigrants, desperate immigrants from Europe and from the Middle East, huge economical problems, but you know, Israel is a dream come true, and as such, I accept it as a flawed fulfillment. This is not about the nature of Israel or Zionism. This is about the nature of dreams and visions, whatever they are. The only way to keep a dream, any dream, flawless and intact and rosy and marvelous is never to try to live it out. The moment you live out even a sexual fantasy, it's not as wonderful as it had been while it was nothing but a fantasy. So I'm very philosophical about the fact that Israel could not possibly live up to the expectations of her funding fathers, funding mothers, and the whole world.
0: And somewhere along the line came the decision after the uh, wars of 67 and 73 to put settlements in the West Bank. And that happened through both labor and Likud. Everybody did that. How popular was the idea of settlements in the West Bank in Israel? Was it ever really popular or was it just done kind of under the surface?
1: Just like the original sin of the Palestinians and the Arabs was there rejecting the partition plan of the United Nations, the original sin of the Israelis was the infatuation with the occupied territories in 1967. Israel fought essentially a war of self-defense and occupied those territories within the course of a war for self-defense and should have kept them as bargaining chips for peace. But there was infatuation and intoxication with the power of military power and a cloud of biblical mysticism about the, settlement, about the territories and the settlements. In those days, it was very, very hard to be anti-settlement, left or right, very hard. My colleagues and myself, people who maintain since 1967 that the solution is a two-state solution. There were so few of us in Israel and in Palestine that we could have conducted our national assemblies inside a public telephone box or almost. Today, the majority of Israeli Jews and the majority
0: of Palestinian Arabs know that in the end of the day there will be two states, whether they like it or not. And so everything that Sharon does, particularly with Gaza, is all a symptom of what's inevitable. You know, there could be a
1: shared monument for stupidity, subsidized by Israelis and Palestinians. Their stupidity in '48, our stupidity since 1967 in putting all those settlements in the occupied territories. Sharon knows now what he should have done 30, 40 years earlier before the first settlement was built. It's not going to be ours because that can, small country is the only homeland of two nations. And we cannot grab the other half, no matter how tempting it is and how strong our emotions are about those biblical landscapes. It cannot be ours. Now he is, he's a late comer, Sharon, and his decision, partial decision, to remove some of the settlements is a belated blessing. And uh, historically, he and others and many others are responsible for an unnecessary decades of
0: suffering and misery on both sides. Amas let's get back a little to the more personal element of, of your book. As the book goes on, it becomes clearer and clearer, even as you drift from the present day to the extreme past, that it will all come down to the story of your mother's suicide. As you wrote that, what kind of apprehensions were you feeling? What kind of fears were you feeling? How difficult was it to write that last 50 to 75 pages? That was an enigma
1: which set me to write this book. How could two gentle, considerate, loving people, my mother and my, my father, generate such a colossal tragedy? How could good plus good generate disaster? I have to confess that in the course of writing A Tale of Love and Darkness, I almost lost interest in the question, how did this happen? Or who caused it? I became much more fascinated by the characters themselves. By the interaction between those two very good people. By their respective childhoods and backgrounds. My father's influence. By the cheerful, optimistic, sanguine romanticism of the 19th century. And my mother's, who was influenced by the other romantic menu, the melancholy, the weltschmerz menu, the sad, desperate menu. How this worked together, the tragic comedy of this relationship, fascinated me and excited me. Of course, I had to put myself under their skins and inside their shoes, but this is what I do as a novelist. Even to write the simplest of dialogues, husband and wife
0: quarreling about who takes the garbage out after dinner, I have to put myself under the skins of both. So it was no more difficult writing those last pages than in some ways working on a novel? What was difficult is not a combination of memory and
1: invention. What was really difficult in this tale was the orchestration. The modulations from the public to the private, after all, it's not chronological the juxtaposition of vast, large, almost war-and-peace-like scenes of history, and on the next page, sometimes a very intimate kitchenette or bedroom scenery, past and present. 19th century, almost 18th century family memoirs in my life, at least factions
0: of my life today. To orchestrate all of this, this was my real challenge. It feels like an orchestration in the sense that certain things are repeated three or four times in gradually increasing depth until we get the full story. And at first, I was thinking he's meandering, but you weren't. You knew exactly what you were doing. Well, I heard the complaint here and there about uh, careless editing. There are repetitions.
1: They have not, clearly, those readers have not understood my refrains, my kind of musical fugue technique, where certain melodical elements repeat themselves with ever-increasing horror until the terrible and It's a book of premonitions. It's a book of signs and omens, just like my childhood, was what, my childhood was full of premonitions and signs and omens. All my parents' life in Europe when they were children was full of awful omens and premonitions.
0: So this is the way this book flows. You talked before about being able to draw more on. Do you plan to write another one starting with the kibbutz? How do you want to look at the rest of it Have you found any kind of hook? I don't see why should I kind of render the story of my life. I think my
1: life is a lot less interesting to me than the lives of my parents. They were the ones who underwent the huge shock of immigration. I don't know. At the moment, I don't even consider A Tale of Love and Darkness Rides Again or The Sun of Love and Darkness. don't <laughs> even consider it. Maybe one day, maybe if I live to be very old, I will. At the moment, no. I'm working on a short novel, totally more
0: conventional, quote-unquote, nature. You talked a moment ago about trying to coordinate the personal and the political. How much of that is logically charted out, and how much of that is just instinctive, this feels right, this is how I'm going to do it? Fusing the personal and the
1: historical, not just the political, but the personal and the historical, comes natural in trouble-stricken parts of the world, in countries or regions which suffer from an overdose of history, almost a poisoning of history, like Jerusalem of my childhood, like Jerusalem of all times. You cannot Possibly separate, think of James Joyce, or for that matter, William Faulkner or Tolstoy, or Garcia Marquez. How much of their storytelling is personal and how much is historical and where do you draw the line? So you don't even have to think about this twice. History is there all the time. I wish I could kick it out. It's 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 a bloody lady. I don't want her in my life, at least not in this intensity. I want her out of my children's and my
0: grandchildren's life. This is Lady Macbeth history is. But there she is. Today, looking back on it, when you see reactions in America toward Israel, as someone in Berkeley who's Jewish and on the left, I see this remarkable relationship between anti-Zionist, anti-Israel feelings and an underlying sense of anti-Semitism. And I'm trying to get a handle on what's what. And I, I keep coming up with, I can't get an answer out of this except that to some degree it scares me i know what you're talking
1: about i doubt it that i have the answer and i don't live here all i can tell you is that the demonic idea that ugly ruthless jews control the world this idea has very deep roots in the very far right and also in the communist left in stalin's last years Wall Street was pictured as a kind of manipulative, Jewish, a, 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 a beyond-the-scene, ugly controller of the world. Now, this has ancient Christian roots, this has cre- ancient pre-Christian roots. Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone who criticizes Israel is an anti semite heaven forbid. Very often it's not anti-Semitism and it's nothing to do with anti-Semitism. On the contrary, it's a kind of naive idealism, idealism which, as I said to you earlier, tends to divide the world into good guys and bad guys. If America is the devil, then Israel is Rosemary's baby, by definition. If the world divides into the righteous, suffering, martyred third world on the one hand, and the tormented, sophisticated western or Northwestern world, then Israel is the devil's agent. But this is, of course, a world of mythologies. And it's very often that radicals, left and right, tend to picture a mythological world. Unfortunately for Israel, it happens to be stuck in the middle of the crossfire, both in the far-left mythology and in the far-right mythology. In the real world, Israel deserves a very serious criticism for its heartless, unimaginative, and selfish policy toward the Palestinians. But at the same time, the Palestinians and the rest of the Arab world also deserves a very serious criticism for uncompromising, unyielding fanaticism, for conducting for decades a war aimed not just at liberating the Palestinians, but at denying from the Israeli Jews that which the Palestinians demand for themselves independence sovereignty statehood so if i have any zeal in me as a political activist and as a storyteller it is the zeal to inject complexity where people live in simplifications almost adolescent simplifications
0: amos oz when we look at something like the death of arafat and we look at what the future is for the palestinians can we see a change, or is that past, the past you talk about in your book, do you think that's going to overwhelm any successor as well?
1: Well, the past will be present in the future. There is no doubt about it. It's present in the future of and in the present of every one of us. And yet there is no reason that the past will completely control the future. There is no doubt in my mind that today the majority of the Israeli Jews as well as the majority of the Palestinian Arabs know that in the end of the day, there will be a two-state solution. Even people on both sides who object this solution know that it is impending. Even people who regard such a solution on both sides as dangerous dangerous or sacrilegious, they know it is impending. This is the good news. You all hear the bad news all the time. Here is my piece of good news. The patient is ready with clenched teeth to the surgery. The doctors are cowards, unfortunately.
0: In the United States right now, we have this split between what would be called the red states, the Bush states, and the blue states, the uh, Kerry slash Gore states. Is there a split like that? Was there a split like that in Israel? And is there any kind of way to relate those two splits? Or is it a completely different system over there?
1: Completely different. I think Israel is more like a mosaic or a patchwork than like a dichotomy. We don't have two major camps who are divided on all issues and within each camp have almost an overall consensus on each issue. You will find some of the religious Jews in Israel very dovish, very compromising toward the Arabs. In fact, dovish to the point of doubting Israel's right to exist before the coming of the Messiah. On the other hand, you will find among some of the doves in Israel, liberals, conservatives, radicals in the Davish coalition so the country is fortunately divided across many lines and not just across
0: one separating trench how do you see bush's role in all this because i know clinton tried to bring things together and it all fell apart for a variety of reasons but what about the bush administration
1: you know in my view and i think this is the view of the peace movement in israel by and large It's up to Israelis and Palestinians in the end. America, and for that matter Europe, can only play a supporting role and not a major role. They cannot bump the heads of the partners into one another and force them to make peace or push them into bed together. It wouldn't work. It will be a disaster. The thing to do now for America, for Europe, for every well-meaning country in the world is to help both sides. The Palestinians, by helping them resettle hundreds of thousands of refugees, in homes in the state of Palestine, not in Israel. Israel needs help and reassurance because once it's withdrew, it withdrew to its pre-67 lines or just about, it will be immensely vulnerable. Both sides will need empathy, help, and reassurance, rather than the finger, the kind of Victorian governess uh, uh, dressing down. How can you behave in such a way? Now, if Any American government or any European government wants to help, they have to be to adopt a hospital attitude, help the patients recover, not the schoolmasterly attitude.
0: Then in that regard, the change in American administrations doesn't matter that much.
1: Or does it? I think some of your previous administrations, notwithstanding in particular the Clinton administration, had more capacity for empathy to both sides than the present administration. The present administration is, I would say, cooler in terms of emotional temperature, cooler to the conflict and to the sufferings
0: of both sides, perhaps incapable to conceive the conflict as a tragedy of right and right. That's an administration that wants to see everything in black and white. I mean, we could see that. How do you look at what happened in Iraq?
1: I was against a war in Iraq in its format as an American crusade against the, uh, the Iraqi regime and against fundamentalist Islam. I tend to believe that the only power in the world that can contain fanatic Islam is moderate Islam. Moderate Islam should be helped and reinforced in subtle and indirect ways, not by writing checks not by sending troops. By the same token, I'll add, the only power in the world which can contain fanatic Judaism is moderate Judaism, and the, same, the only power in the world which can contain fundamentalist Christianity is moderate Christianity. It has to come from within and not from without. It can be helped by the outside, but this help
0: must come in a subtle and tactful way and not as a punch in the face. During the middle of uh, A Tale of Love and Darkness, you come back to the present, which at that time was first the summer of 2001, later the fall. In there on September 11th, the, the World Trade Center was attacked. How did that play out in Israel, or was it just a fairly small tale that didn't affect you all that much?
1: It was a very big tale, but it's impossible to talk of an Israeli conception of anything because we are as divided as they come. You don't get two Israelis to agree with one another on anything. It's hard to get one of us to agree with himself or herself. So the hawks in Israel were reinforced by 9-11, saying, haven't we told you all the time that this world is full of monsters and the monsters ought to be killed for the sake of world security, not only Israel, but America. The doves, for their part, found even more arguments to argue that the rift between south and north, not between east and west, not the war of civilizations, but the struggle between the fanatics and the rest of the world, fanatics which are not necessarily in the domain of Islam, they are everywhere. This struggle can be contained, not resolved, not won. contained, by a subtle, sophisticated and generous policy, first and foremost probably by reconstructing the middle class where this class was socially wiped off. This is the way in which Harry Truman won the Cold War, not Ronald Reagan won it, Harry Truman won it by initiating the Marshall Plan and rebuilding the ruined middle class in Europe, including in former enemy countries. And this, I believe, is the way to go about Islam. Reconstruct subtly and gently the Arab secular middle
0: class and have this middle class contain the fanatics. This program is dedicated to the memory of Stephanie Harold. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky Podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.